Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits and improve your relationships, and how to make sense of reports in the media that purportedly tell you all about new potential treatments for mental illness, research into the causes of mental illness, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, along with better educating the general public about mental health issues. And this edition of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday, July 20th, 2016. Hope that you are enjoying your summer so far, or what's left of it anyway. You live here in Georgia, your kids are going back to school in just a few weeks. Scary thought. Well, in any case, uh, as the country still roils from the effects of shootings, police shootings, retaliations against the police, and very disturbing world events, like terrorist attacks, military coups and our allies, it's hard to maintain good mental health. Uh, seems like a lot of people are really, really on edge, and uh, justifiably so. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm going to be talking about more mundane things that certainly do relate to you know, topics in behavioral health, in psychiatry and psychology, that hopefully you'll find interesting and informative. Clearly, I think, in my opinion, the top mental health-related story of this past week was <clears throat> that some scientists found an important new role for the immune system in the brain. And it was only fairly recently that scientists discovered that there are actually immune system connections in the brain tissue itself. Uh, and now they think they have elucidated connections between the immune system in the brain and how we function socially. According to the researchers who discovered this link, they feel it is of profound importance to how we function socially as human beings. Well, these University of Virginia School of Medicine researchers claim to have made a startling discovery raising fundamental questions about human behavior. They determined that the immune system directly affects and even controls our social behavior, such as our desire to interact with others. So does that mean, is it possible that immune system problems contribute to an inability to have normal social interactions? The answer appears to be yes, and that finding could have tremendous implications 
for neurological and neurodegenerative conditions, such as autism spectrum disorders, where we know that lack of social interactivity and lack of social insight is a core feature of those disorders, and also schizophrenia, which most often results in apathy and social withdrawal. The brain and the adaptive immune system were long thought to be isolated from each other, and any immune activity in the brain was perceived as a sign of pathology or illness, infection, for example. And now, not only are we learning that they are closely interacting, but apparently some of our behavior traits might have evolved because of our immune response to pathogens. Now, pathogens that could be bacteria, viruses, fungi even. Part of our personality may actually be dictated by the immune system. This would be a startling revelatory finding indeed. It was only work last year that these same researchers discovered that there are vessels in the meninges of the brain. This is the covering around the brain tissue. That uh, there are vessels in the meninges that link the brain with the lymphatic system. Uh, you may be familiar with the lymphatic system, lymph nodes, right? Those are parts of the immune system. And this finding that the brain actually did have direct immune connections overturned decades, uh, if not a century or more, of textbook teaching that the brain was so-called immune privileged. That is, it lacked a direct connection to the immune system. The discovery that, in fact, it was tied to the immune system opened the door for entirely new ways of thinking about how the brain and the immune system interact. And again, this only was brought to light by the same researchers last year, so they've been busy since then. And this follow-up finding that's reported in this article is equally illuminating, shedding light on both the workings of the brain and perhaps on evolution itself. The relationship between people and pathogens, the researchers suggest, could have directly affected the development of our social behavior, allowing us to engage in the social interactions necessary for the survival of the species, while developing ways for our immune systems to protect us from the diseases that accompany those interactions. Social behavior is, of course, in the interest of pathogens, as it allows them to spread. I realize this seems very bizarre and somewhat out of science fiction, the idea that some sort of infectious pathogen could get into the brain and actually direct human behavior. The notion is not so bizarre it is well known that certain obscure fungi and parasites can do just that. <clears throat> so uh, if you 
consider that, it's really not so bizarre to contemplate that other more commonplace pathogens could do the same thing. The University of Virginia researchers have shown that a specific immune molecule, interferon gamma, seems to be critical for social behavior and that a variety of creatures, including flies, zebrafish, mice, and rats, activate interferon gamma responses when they are social. Normally, this molecule is produced by the immune system in response to bacteria, viruses, or parasites. <clears throat> Blocking this molecule in mice using genetic modification made regions of their brains hyperactive, causing the mice to become less social. Restoring the molecule restored the brain connectivity and behavior to normal. In a paper outlining their findings, the researchers note the immune molecule plays a profound role in maintaining proper social function. It is extremely critical for an organism to be social for the survival of the species. It's important for foraging, sexual reproduction, gathering, hunting. The hypothesis is that when organisms come together, you have a higher propensity to spread infection. So you need to be social, but in doing so, you have a higher chance of spreading pathogens. The idea is that interferon gamma in evolution has been used as a more efficient way to both boost social behavior while boosting an anti-pathogen response. The researchers note that a malfunctioning immune system may be responsible for social deficits in numerous neurological and psychiatric disorders. But exactly what this might mean for autism and other specific conditions requires further investigation. It is unlikely that any one molecule, such as gamma interferon, will be responsible for disease or the key to a cure. Instead, the researchers believe the causes are likely to be much more complex. But the discovery that the immune system, and possibly germs by extension, can control our interactions raises many exciting avenues for scientists to explore, both in terms of battling neurological disorders and understanding human behavior. Immune molecules are actually defining how the brain is functioning. So what is the overall impact of the immune system on our brain development and function? The philosophical aspects of this work are very interesting, but it also has potentially very important clinical implications. The team worked closely with UVA's Department of Pharmacology and a group at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, which developed a computational approach to investigate the complex dialogue between immune signaling and brain function 
in health and disease. Using this approach, they predicted a role for interferon gamma, an important cytokine secreted by T lymphocytes. T lymphocytes are a certain type of white blood cell in promoting social brain functions. Cytokine is a chemical released by white blood cells. Think of it as a kind of a chemical messenger that sets off other reactions in the body. The findings contribute to a deeper understanding of social function in neurological disorders such as autism and schizophrenia and may open new avenues for therapeutic approaches. And this has been published online in the journal Nature. Well, I'll bring you more developments as they come up in this issue. But right now, we've got to take a commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. You know, in my private practice of psychiatry, I often get asked the question, is there any particular diet that I should adhere to as far as maintaining good mental health? Um, Or I will hear about people who are trying certain diets for one reason or the other, and and therefore the subject comes up. So this next article definitely caught my eye about fruit and veggies giving you the feel-good factor. That's right. You know, we know that fruits and vegetables are good for you. We know they're part of a good balanced diet and especially a heart-healthy diet. And as you've often heard me preach on this show, Heart-healthy diets are brain-healthy diets. But how about some actual scientific study to back this up? Well, fortunately, we get that from the University of Warwick, where research indicates that eating more fruit and vegetables can substantially increase people's later happiness levels. 
This is to be published shortly in the American Journal of Public Health. And this study is one of the first major scientific attempts to explore psychological well-being beyond the traditional finding that fruit and vegetables can reduce risk of cancer and heart attacks. Happiness benefits were detected for each extra daily portion of fruit and vegetables, up to eight portions per day. In other words, what they're saying is each portion up to a total of eight per day that you had of fruit and vegetables, that's how much happier you are, but the effect maxes out after you've had eight portions. I'd say that's pretty good if you're having eight portions a day. Uh, of course, you know, at least that much I think is recommended when it comes to heart uh, healthy diets. Researchers concluded that people who changed from almost no fruit and vegetable to eight portions a day would experience an increase in life satisfaction equivalent to that of moving from unemployment to employment. The well-being improvements occurred within 24 months. That seemed a little odd to me. I wonder why it would take two years to see the full benefit. Uh, in any case, the study followed more than 12,000 randomly selected people. These subjects kept food diaries and had their psychological well-being measured. The authors found large positive psychological benefits within two years of an improved diet. Eating fruit and vegetables apparently boosts our happiness far more quickly than it improves human health. I guess the scientists consider within two years fairly quickly. People's motivation to eat healthy food is weakened by the fact that physical health benefits, such as protecting against cancer, accrue decades later. However, well-being improvements from increased consumption of fruit and vegetables are closer to immediate. So there's uh, the perspective the scientists have, uh, whereas eating well to prevent cancer is something that you're going to have to wait decades to see the benefits of. If you consider the time frame of that as opposed to two years or less to feel more happiness from eating vegetables, that is a more immediate effect, relatively speaking. This research was in fact a collaboration between the University of Warwick in England and the University of Queensland in Australia. The researchers found that happiness increased incrementally for each extra daily portion of fruit and vegetables up to eight portions a day. It involved an examination of longitudinal food diaries of 12,385 randomly sampled Australian adults over 2007, 2009, and 2013. And it was part of a household income and labor dynamics survey in Australia. The authors adjusted the effects on incident changes in happiness and life satisfaction for people's changing incomes and other personal circumstances that would affect their level of happiness.
The authors claim that the study has policy implications, particularly in the developed world where the typical citizen eats an unhealthy diet. The findings could be used by health professionals to persuade people to consume more fruits and vegetables. Not sure how much that persuasion is going to help. Um, I can just hear the reaction. So you want me to eat more fruit and vegetables, and it'll take me up to two years to feel happier, whereas if I eat these cookies or ice cream, I'm going to feel happy immediately. Well, in any case, perhaps the results will be more effective than traditional messages in convincing people to have a healthy diet. There is a psychological payoff now from fruit and vegetables, not just a physical payoff in terms of lower health risks decades down the road. The authors found that alterations in fruit and vegetable intake were predictive of later alterations in happiness and satisfaction with life. They took into account many other influences, including changes in people's incomes and life circumstances. One part of the study examined information from the Australian Go for Two and Five campaign. This campaign was run in some Australian states which have promoted the consumption of two portions of fruit and five portions of vegetables each day. Uh, that, if it sounds familiar to you, should. It in large part echoes uh, the recommendations of our ever-changing and evolving food pyramid here in the United States. And then there's the antioxidant effect. This is the obvious connection if you think about why fruits and vegetables would make you happier, right? We know that they're both rich in antioxidants. We know the brain thrives and, and loves antioxidants and functions better when we have plenty of them in our, in our diet. So the academics think it may be possible eventually to link this study to current research into antioxidants, which suggests a connection between optimism and levels of chemicals such as carotenoids in the blood. However, certainly further research is needed in this area. But there you go, at least now we have some hard scientific evidence showing if you want to feel happier, follow your grandmother's advice. Eat your veggies and eat some fruit too. Alright, well, next up on Psychiatry Today, those of you who have epilepsy or those of you who have friends or loved ones who have epilepsy, Please pay very special attention to this next item, very, very serious. <clears throat> the suicide rate among people with epilepsy is 22% higher than the general population. This according to a new study released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, and it was published in the journal epilepsy and behavior. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. As recent research suggested that epilepsy, psychiatric disorders, 
and suicide might be linked, CDC researchers used data from the 2003 to 2011 United States National Violent Death Reporting System, a large multiple state surveillance system that collects information on violent deaths, including suicide, to find out how often and in which conditions suicide occurs among epilepsy patients. The resulting report is the first state-based study in the United States to examine the suicide rate and suicide risk factors among people with epilepsy. Between 2003 and 2011, an average of 17 out of 100,000 people with epilepsy aged 10 years and older died from suicide each year compared to 14 out of 100,000 in the general population. Among adults aged 40 to 49 years, those with epilepsy died more often from suicide, 29%, than those without epilepsy, 22%. The authors looked at additional factors such as race, ethnicity, education, and marital status, which overall did not differ between those with and without epilepsy who died from suicide. However, it is important to note that in both groups, about one-third of the suicides occurred among those with the least education. The study also revealed that people with epilepsy were more likely to commit suicide in residential settings, 81%, compared to those without the disorder, 76%. This is important to highlight because more suicides in people with epilepsy resulted from poisoning. As a result, it may be beneficial to have caregivers, relatives, and others in the home of epilepsy patients with a prior suicide risk supervise the availability of potentially harmful materials, or I would like to add better yet, just get them out of the house in the first place. The suicide rate is higher among people with epilepsy compared to the general population, so suicide prevention efforts are urgently needed to prevent these deaths, is the take-home message from this research. And it, it serves an important message to patients and caregivers alike about epilepsy and mental health. And we're going to take another commercial break here. Uh, when we come back, I'll finish up this article and give you some other thoughts about epilepsy and mood disorders. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 
and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how researchers found a higher suicide rate among epilepsy patients compared to the general population caregivers of people with epilepsy and other members of the public can participate in programs such as Mental Health First Aid, which is an evidence-based program available in many United States communities that teaches people about mental illness symptoms and how to recognize and intervene during a mental health crisis. Um, And CDC's website has more information about community-based programs to help reduce depression in adults with epilepsy. And whether they're epileptic or not, if you know someone who is at risk of suicide, call the United States National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-TALK or to get immediate help or look up a local support line in your country or state or county on the website of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. Now, I'd just like to add a little bit about the connection between epilepsy and mood disorders. If you look at the medications that are used to treat bipolar disorder, of course there's lithium is the classic first one, the prototype, but most of the others are also anticonvulsants. Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, these drugs all initially were only used to treat epilepsy. And it was only later on that they were used to treat bipolar disorder, which is a mood disorder in which people have debilitating bouts of extreme depression to the point of feeling suicidal and other opposite 
just as debilitating bouts of mania where they're completely hyperactive, go without sleep, racing thoughts, uh, overactive, goal-directed behavior with recklessness and impulsivity, which can lead to severe extreme exhaustion. Now, the reason that Depakote, Tegretol, and Lamictal were discovered as mood stabilizers was the finding that in patients with epilepsy who took these drugs to control their epileptic seizures, they reported that their mood was better. They reported they had less trouble with anger, agitation, irritability, and depression. And it was after epilepsy patients reported this finding that researchers then tested these drugs as treatments for bipolar disorder, and they were found to be helpful. Which begs the question, doesn't it, that, well, if that's the case, then is it not likely that if you look for it, you're going to find that people with epilepsy uh, are also subject to having problems with their mood, especially depression, and therefore should not come as any surprise that they are at higher risk of suicide than the general population. <clears throat> Next on Psychiatry Today, a stress in the workplace segment for you. Uh, <clears throat> those of you who are women who have had problems in the workplace uh, and you feel you've been the victim of gender discrimination, you'll definitely want to listen up to this next segment. It turns out that the workplace climate, not women's nature, is responsible for gender-based job stress, according to uh, researchers at Indiana University. Social scientists have long known that women working in numerically male-dominated occupations, like physics and firefighting, report experiencing workplace stress, but men who work in numerically female-dominated occupations, like nursing and childcare, do not. But why is this? Is it something about women or something about the workplace. A study by an Indiana University sociologist endeavored to answer this question, and the suggestion is that it's the latter. In other words, it's more about the workplace than about anything to do with women's nature. There was an experiment that subjected both men and women to the negative social conditions that many women report experiencing in male-dominated occupations. The result? Men showed the same physiological stress response to the conditions as did women. Women were not especially sensitive to negative workplace social conditions. Rather, both women and men exhibit similar responses to the same types of stressful workplace conditions. The article is called Relational by Nature, Men and Women Do Not Differ in Physiological Response to Social Stressors Faced by Token Women, 
appears in the July 2016 issue of the journal American Journal of Sociology, and it is available online. The study focuses on gendered social exclusion, behavior that would tend to make token women or men feel excluded from a group of mostly opposite-sex co-workers. For example, men might exclude female co-workers by talking constantly about sports or other stereotypically male interests. It addresses the question of whether, as some observers have suggested, women are simply more sensitive to such exclusion if they are relational by nature and respond more strongly than men to being shut out of social interaction in the workplace. In order to tease out this question, scientists recruited undergraduate research assistants whose role in the study was to be confederates, and they trained them to extensively manage peer-to-peer conversations in a laboratory setting. Study participants were also undergraduates recruited on a university campus. Now, in social science research, if you're a confederate, that means that you're actually working with the researcher and uh, you are part of the experiment, but um, you're not one of the subjects. You're helping to carry out the experiment, but you are interacting with the experiments subjects in order to uh, bring about uh, the information that will drive the results of the study. To determine the effect of gendered social exclusion, researchers placed female study participants in experimental groups with three male confederates and male study participants in groups with three female confederates. The Confederates were trained to make the study participants feel excluded by talking about stereotypically masculine topics like sports, video games, and a class in business statistics, or stereotypically feminine topics, shopping, yoga, and Pilates, and a class in child development and by subtly excluding the participants from the conversations. Uh, The author compared the stress response of these participants with the stress response of participants in groups made up of members of the same sex that did not use conversation to make the participants feel excluded. Now, if you're having serious concerns and reservations about the design of this study, including the topics chosen to somehow generate the feelings of gender exclusion, by the author's own admission, stereotypically male versus stereotypically female topics, I share your concern. Um, you know, in, in this day and age, you mean to tell me that no women want to talk about sports, video games, or business statistics? And no men want to talk about shopping, yoga, Pilates for child development. Um, You know, well, uh, for better or for worse, this was the study design. And uh, 
let's let's try to look past our questions about that and uh, see what data they found and what implications it has. Now, in order to measure the subject's stress response, at several points during the experiment, they measured levels of the hormone cortisol in the participants' saliva. Cortisol is, as you know, the main stress hormone, and it is a known indicator of physiological stress. And measuring it in saliva samples of research subjects has now become a standard way to measure how much stress is being generated in the participants. The cortisol levels rose markedly in the participants who were subjected to this gendered exclusion type conversation, but not in the other participants. The cortisol response was robust and statistically significant. But interestingly, it was just as strong in men who were subject to, subjected to the gendered exclusion conversation as in women who were subjected to the same type of social exclusion. So in other words, what they found were men or women, if you're the only person of your gender in the group, and the rest of the group is actively talking about stereotypically uh, opposite gender to you, uh, subjects and deliberately excluding you from the conversation, or at least ignoring you, then you're likely to be under stress, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, <clears throat> so the results suggest that conditions associated with male-dominated professions are what cause token women to report experiencing high levels of stress in the workplace. All right, we're going to take a commercial break here. We'll finish up our discussion of this study and its implications when we come back from that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And before the break, we were talking about how some social scientists were looking at the issue of how gender exclusion sometimes happens in the workplace, Um, trying to tease out the issue. Is it something about women that they're particularly vulnerable to this, or is it the workplace itself? And as we found, they measured levels of cortisol, which is an indication of how much under stress people were, and whether they manipulated the experimental conditions to have the man be amongst all women or the woman be amongst all men. It stresses both men and women equally the same. Well, what is the implication of the study, and how should this change things in the workplace? Well, the answer isn't to fix women by teaching them to be less sensitive, obviously, because when women and men are exposed to the same exact social conditions, they actually have the same stress response. Therefore, the better answer, obviously, is to address the workplace social exclusion faced by any minority in their occupation. Exposure to chronic physiological stress responses indicated by the cortisol response has been found to be associated with many negative health effects, including heart disease, digestive problems, weight gain, and depression. So that means the findings of this study do matter. For another thing, both stress and exclusion from important workplace social networks and mentorship may be significant factors in preventing women from getting or keeping jobs in male-dominated occupations. Male-dominated occupations, on average, have higher pay and prestige and better working conditions than mixed-gender or female-dominated occupations. The under-representation of women in male-dominated occupations is a significant factor behind the gender wage gap. On average, women earn only 78 cents for every dollar earned by men. Well, uh, the author concludes that if the workplace climate were less unfriendly, we might see more women in these male-dominated occupations, and we might see more parity in pay. That would be good for women and good for families. Well, it is interesting that she showed if you're the token one of your gender in a workplace, that can cause stress. 
However, I tend to differ with their conclusion that looking at this issue could help gender parity in pay. Uh, other research that is not necessarily social science research, but purely economic research, has just recently documented that at least part of the gender pay gap is because uh, women more often ask for and receive flexibility in terms of work schedules. And, uh, you know, this comes at a price, uh, which is not to say there's anything wrong with providing women more flexibility in terms of work schedules. And again, I'm not expressing an opinion on this one way or the other, just reporting you the facts. Uh, but regardless, I think it is an important issue. It has important implications for how we address stress in the workplace, uh, trying to be aware of this issue and prevent gender exclusion in the workplace, uh, especially for women, but apparently for men as well. Next up on Psychiatry Today, very interesting study, sounds like something out of science fiction, that purportedly shows how people can control not just one, but multiple drones just by using their thoughts. A researcher at Arizona State University has discovered how to control multiple robotic drones just using the thought of the human brain. A controller wears a skull cap outfitted with 128 electrodes wired to a computer. The device records electrical brain activity. If the controller moves a hand or thinks of something, certain areas light up. If the user is thinking about decreasing cohesion between the drones, spreading them out, in other words, they know what part of the brain controls that thought. A wireless system sends the thoughts to the robots. They have a motion capture system that knows where the quads are, and they change their distance, and that's it. Up to four small robots, some of which can fly, can be controlled with brain interfaces. Joysticks don't work because they can only control one craft at a time. You can't do something collectively with a joystick. If you want to swarm around an area and guard that area, you can't do that with a joystick. To make the drones move, the controller watches on a monitor and thinks and pictures the drones performing various tasks. During the last two to three decades, there has been a lot of research on single-brain machine interface, where you control a single machine. The two-year project was funded by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency of the United States Department of Defense and the Air Force. Now, <clears throat> Air Force pilots were skeptical. Their main objection was what would happen if they thought of something else while controlling the drones. 
Well, controllers have to stay focused. If it's close to lunch and all you can think about is pizza, it doesn't work. Fatigue and stress also play a part. The designer of the system can tell when subjects are tired or need a break. They tell the subject to think of two things. Focus on breathing or tell them to imagine closing their left hand into a fist. Each subject is different. The system has to be calibrated to individual controllers and it has to be done every day because brain signals change from day to day. The next step in research is multiple people controlling multiple robots. In the future, perhaps this could lead to drone swarms performing complex operations, such as search and rescue missions. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure this is not comforting to those who see drones and how they may be used by civilian authorities, much less the military as something that could interfere with our privacy um, and, uh, you know, other nefarious uses, and certainly guard against criminal uses as well. Um, nonetheless, uh, from just purely looking at it as a way that technology can be controlled simply by thought, uh, it is definitely fascinating on that level, in my opinion. Now let's turn our attention to some research that found some more evidence as to why the genders are different, evidence in terms of brain structure and activity. While measuring brain activity with magnetic resonance imaging during blood pressure trials, some UCLA researchers found that men and women had opposite responses in the right front of the insular cortex, which is a part of the brain integral to the experience of emotions and self-awareness and also blood pressure control. The insular cortex has five main parts called gyri serving different roles. The researchers found that the blood pressure response in the front right gyrus showed an opposite pattern in men and women with men showing a greater right-sided activation in the area, while the women showed a lower response. This region, the right front insula, is involved with stress and keeping heart rate and blood pressure high. It's possible the women had already activated this region because of psychological stress, so that when they did the physical test in the study, the brain region could not activate anymore. However, it's also possible that this region is wired differently in men and women. We have always thought that the normal pattern was for this right front insular region to activate more than other areas. <clears throat> that is, during a task that raises blood pressure. However, since most earlier studies were in men or male animals, it looks like this normal response was only in men. The healthy response in women seems to be a lower right-sided activation. Most studies on differences in brain functions between men and women have looked at psychological performance. In previous studies, 
UCLA researchers had seen differences in heart rate and brain blood flow during blood pressure changes in men and women with obstructive sleep apnea and wanted to see if cardiovascular responses in brain areas were different in healthy men and women. This raises several questions, such as why is there a difference in brain pattern and might it reflect differences in health issues for men and women, particularly in cardiovascular disease variations? To find the answers, further study on this difference will be needed to gain a better understanding of susceptibility to disease, efficacy of drugs, and even the course of normal development among all individuals, not just between men and women. Differences in the structure and function of the insula in men and women might contribute to different clinical symptoms in some medical disorders. For example, we know that uh, symptoms of heart attacks differ in men and women, and this leads to differences in diagnosis and treatment of those disorders in men versus women. I was hoping they were going to elucidate more than just differences in blood pressure, uh, the other things they mentioned, such as self-awareness and control over emotions. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it interesting and informative, and I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.